Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're talking to David Miliband, who is currently head of the International Rescue Committee, and we're talking about this crisis in the poorest parts of the world, but also what it means for the future of the world order. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics, writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. We recorded this conversation on Tuesday afternoon UK time, Tuesday morning US time. David is, as you might imagine, a very busy man. So you'll occasionally get the bleep of a new email arriving on his computer. So David, we're going to get on to some of the wider questions coming out of this crisis about globalization and the international order. But to start with, just to get your sense of how it looks from your perspective as the head of the International Rescue Committee, this is a global crisis, but it's having very different effects in different places. We're focused at the moment on its effects in the richest countries in the world, but how does it look in the poorest? Thanks for asking, because too few people are, are asking that question. By fluke or by demography, given the youthfulness of the populations in the countries that we work, places in the Middle East, uh, places in sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia, the disease has not yet hit with full force. But everything that our health team know, everything that our teams on the ground know, I've just been on the call with our teams in Tanzania and in Somalia, everything they know tells you that the official count of the number of cases, 436 as it happens in Somalia, only 700 people tested, uh, 300 in Tanzania, everything they know tells us that those numbers are a serious underestimate, but more significant that everything about population density, about underlying health conditions, about the weakness of the health infrastructure, uh, about the poverty, suggests that this disease is going to run rampant and it's going to have much more serious consequences even than in the advanced industrialized world. We're putting out a report this week which uses the Imperial College World Health Organization algorithm to try and get a fix on what kind of devastation is it going to bring. And just thinking about the health side, we reckon that using that algorithm, we're talking about 500 million to a billion infections in the 34 fragile and conflict states that we work in. And even assuming, which is quite a generous assumption, an average of Chinese levels of healthcare in those countries, we're looking at between one and a half million and 3.2 million people dead. So you can see that just on the health front, the health emergency is really serious. And that's even before you begin to think about the second aspect of the emergency, which is the social and economic collateral. So our plea at the moment is to use the window of time for prevention, basic hand washing, 
basic fever testing, basic creation of isolation spaces to try and mitigate the danger of this absolutely rampant disease with, with disastrous consequences. And as you say, I think of that report, you characterise it as a double crisis, and it is a different kind of crisis in countries where a shutdown of economic activity is itself a humanitarian crisis, and where healthcare is so weak that were the disease to run rampant, it would overwhelm health systems almost immediately. We're used in countries like this one, the one that you're in, to thinking about these trade-offs and these balances. But there's a sense from what I've read and from what you've said in, in parts of the world, there isn't that space for judging these things against each other. It's just hitting at the same time across both fronts. Yeah, it's a double emergency. I mean, we know that in the US, I think the, the figure is something like 60% of the population have got less than $400 in the bank. In the UK, a quarter of the population have got less than £100. But in the countries where poverty, including extreme poverty, people living on less than $1.25 a day is so huge that there isn't really talk of a trade-off. Just if you think about the statistics, it's, it's extraordinary demonstration of the holes in the global safety net, which is something we'll come back to, I think, in the wider discussion. There are four ventilators in the whole of South Sudan. There's one ventilator in Sierra Leone, a population of seven and a half million. Um, in northwest Syria, 85 health facilities were bombed including some of our own. In Venezuela, which is actually a middle-class country, given its oil, previous oil revenues, 50% of the doctors have fled. And in Yemen, which is the world's largest humanitarian emergency, 24 million people in humanitarian need, half of the health system isn't functioning. So you've got both the health system and the economic systems in these countries on an absolute precipice. And it doesn't take much to knock an awful lot of people off. And that's what I think we're facing now. And the best we can do is mobilize for to mitigate that damage because both on the health front and on the economic front it's very very dark picture and social distancing which is the strategy that we've been adopting in some places is is a physical impossibility i mean some of the places that you work in not just in refugee camps but there are parts of the world where the density of population means you cannot move apart well that's a good point i mean the just to give give listeners a sense of this so the new york density is about 10,000 people per square kilometer. In the Cox's Bazaar refugee camp, which is one of the largest camps in the world, the largest camp in the world, actually, it's got about a million Rohingya Muslims who were chased out of Myanmar, Burma. The density is between 40 and 70,000 per square kilometer. And closer to home, there's a refugee camp in Greece, Moria camp, where 20,000 people are living. It was built for about 2,500 and the density there is, is 150, 200,000 people per square kilometer. So you can see that the density, which is a major factor in the spread of the disease, heaps danger upon insecurity in these places. It's also, of course, the urban areas. I think it's very significant. If you look at Singapore, which is a country that did really well with its own population, low hundreds of people catching the disease, very small numbers dying, it's now up to 11, 12,000 infections because of the migrant labor that is there and 18 to 20 people living per room. And so you can see how density makes the, the, the double danger of this disease. It's both easily spread, unlike Ebola, and if you get it, it has a higher fatality rate than the normal flu, although not quite as high as Ebola. So you can see the double danger of the disease and how it threatens populations that are undergoing humanitarian stress anyway. It threatens them many times over. So in something that you wrote recently, you said that 
we're only as strong as the weakest link in the global chain. And the Singapore example illustrates that up to a point, the sense in which you've got this thing under control and then it comes back in in ways that you weren't anticipating. As we start to move in the richer parts of the world to whatever stage two of our dealing with this pandemic is, having got some of it under control, do you think, do you get a sense that people are looking around, looking at it for the first time, perhaps properly as a global problem and thinking the only way out of this in the long run is to manage its effects, not just within our borders, but help everywhere? I don't think so, no. I, I think you, you don't see it. I see more myopia than global thinking. I mean, if you think about the discussion about easing of the lockdown, of quote-unquote opening up, it's all about what happens within, I mean, actually within the US, it's about what happens within a state or within groups of states. But generally, it's about what happens within a nation. I have seen no really serious work about what a opening up might mean globally. And there are two there are two parts of this. Of course, people like me have got to be careful that we address seriously the question, well, how is someone who wants to go back to work in Cambridge really affected by what goes on in South Sudan? And if you take South Sudan as the as a proxy for the weakest link in the chain, we've got to be careful not to overclaim. But equally, I think we've got to map out how there is logic in in the argument that this is a disease of the connected world and will only be properly beaten anywhere until it's beaten everywhere. And I think the way to think about that is to say, well, look, there are people from Cambridge who travel. They may not go to South Sudan, but they may go to Nairobi. Now, there are plenty of people who are going in and out of South Sudan who also go to Nairobi. And as you go through Nairobi airport, you can see without too many links in the chain, you can see how the disease then gets spread again and how you've got to be able to muster a preventative effort, a suppressive effort globally, not just locally. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it, obviously, is that if you can't handle things locally, there's no way you can think globally. And that's certainly striking to me as I think about the American response. I was actually on a call uh, that was called for the US NGOs with President Trump, and the rest of the world just did not figure. It didn't, didn't appear. So you've got a real vacuum of global leadership from some of the places that have traditionally provided it. And the added burden that the local effort is not going well. And if you look at the United States, I mean, that line that we're only as strong as the weakest link, it doesn't even seem to be happening internally. I mean, the US doesn't look like a a nation state that is focusing relentlessly on the weakest link in order to prevent the disease contaminating other places. It it seems local even within the local. That that's really striking point, I think. I mean, I've been coming to the US now for thirty years. And I'm really struck that the polarization that people talk of as a political or even cultural question is now deeper. I mean, you've seen this in in the comments of the Senate majority leader almost inviting bankruptcy for states that he doesn't like. And yesterday, Governor Cuomo of New York pointed out that New York is the number one state for net contributions to the federal budget. And his point was, well, you know, I dare you, because you're going to contaminate the whole notion of, of a country. It, it does feel more and more like a continent, not a country. And that tyranny of the local, if you like, is something that I think is very striking. Obviously, you've got a parallel in Europe, not not as strong, but the European response beyond national borders has not been as strong as it needs to be. Yet, all the evidence is that this disease of the connected world needs stronger international institutions. 
And we may well find that actually people are willing to admit that in health in respect to the WHO, notwithstanding the current attacks from President Trump, but they don't take that point more generally. I think it's really important that we understand that this weakest link point, this question of the holes in the global safety net that exacerbates the disease and its spread is something that is a really profound challenge to, to the way we tackle global problems. So if we look at that wider global picture and what this might mean medium, long term, there's clearly already talk about a retreat from globalization, about this pandemic having revealed the vulnerability of a world that's so interconnected. And you have made the case that you can draw the opposite lesson, that in such an interconnected world without well-functioning global institutions, that's why you're in trouble. But it kind of pulls both ways. You can imagine the argument going among people who don't believe in the possibility of those well-functioning institutions, that it does make the case for a, a less interconnected, less exposed to this kind of risk world if you do not have the faith that those institutions can step up to the mark. It's almost already a stress test for those beliefs. Do you actually think it's possible? And I mean, I'm sure you do, but it's a question that everyone, in a sense, has to ask. Do you think it is possible to have the kind of institutions that can manage this kind of interconnectivity? Because if you don't, the instinct will be to retreat. Yes, I mean, I I don't think I'm a blind optimist. And I certainly think I'm pretty realistic about some of the limitations of multilateral organizations. But if the question is, is it possible to conceive that you can build a political coalition that addresses the holes in the global safety net in a way that is serious and is rigorous? I think the answer is yes. That's not just because I think the dystopia of a world, I think Yuval Harari called it a network of fortresses, that that is so so far from what most people would consider to be an optimal solution that I think you can make a case for stronger global institutions. But I also think that so much of the connected world that has an upside is taken for granted. So there are there are two sides to the argument. Now I'm I'm also realistic about how hard it is. I think maybe the way to to address it is to, is, is to think about the conditions that could make for a winning argument. I, I've I've thought about this in terms of four different contests. I wrote about this in the New Statesman, actually. One contest is about globalization and whether or not this is a disease that exposes why globalization is wrong or why global integration needs to be better governed. Uh, the second contest is actually about democracy and about whether or not this crisis produces a, a further acceleration of the anti-democratic trends we've seen in the last 15 years. I mean, more than 100 countries have seen democratic recession since 2006, uh, less independent judiciary, um, less fair elections. Um, And obviously, there's a geopolitical aspect to this with the increasing Chinese confidence about the way they uh, see the crisis and their management of it and the opportunities it presents. There's a third contest, which is about privacy, and about essentially whether or not people trust government or or I guess whether they trust Google more than they trust government. And that's going to be central to the contact tracing that's essential in managing this disease. And then the fourth contest is about the degree to which inequality, global inequality is seen, and local inequality actually, within nations and globally, is seen as a contributor to the virulence of this disease or or irrelevant to it. Now, I think you can only answer the question about the contest over global institutions if you're willing to address the three other contests as well. 
And I appreciate that that makes it more complicated, but that's because I, I guess that reflects that my thinking hasn't yet gone far enough. But I think that if we're going to win the argument that you need a stronger World Health Organization, never mind stronger global economic institutions to manage crises like this, you have to win the argument that you can distribute the benefits of global integration more fairly, that you have to be able to protect people's privacy, and that you have to have a way of defending liberal democratic rights, not as a new Cold War against authoritarian countries, autocratic countries, but as a basis on which to negotiate and compete and engage with them. I completely take the point that the, the four are interconnected, and I'm sure you're right. But I'm still going to ask you about them separately, and then we'll see how they, yeah. they link up. On the, the US-China confrontation, so we've seen it with the WHO, for instance, an organisation that most people didn't think was deeply political, has now been profoundly politicised by that relationship. Which are the international organisations that you think are most likely to allow for a more productive relationship between the US and China? I mean, when you look at it, are there areas where you think we should be more hopeful? Well, I don't know about hopeful, but where we should be more determined. I mean, the WHO is an obvious one. I think the G20, which was a big move in the wake of the financial crisis and actually played a central role in the recovery from the financial crisis. I also believe that although it's disappeared from the discussion over the last two, three months, climate and decarbonisation is the central basis of European and Chinese uh, cooperation and should involve a sane American approach to, to climate as well. So I don't think we're short of areas for global cooperation. The most obvious one that has legs now is obviously in global health, notwithstanding President Trump's attacks on the World Health Organization, which I think Congress is likely to, to block. But you know well that the politics of the WHO are part of its problem. And its need for more ability to hold nations to account, not just China, but also the US. It's quite, the WHO is quite mealy-mouthed in the way it talks about the American response to the crisis, as well as the Chinese response to the crisis, as well as the Chinese denialism at the beginning of the crisis. And that's, that's a huge argument about the element of executive power that you want to vest in these international institutions. Because at one level, they depend for their legitimacy on the support of nation states. On the other hand, they depend for their efficacy on their ability to stand independent of the nation states. And that gets to the point about trust. And, and you've written about this, others have written about it too, that one way of looking at what's going on is it's not democracies are either doing well or badly or authoritarian regimes are doing well or badly. Some are doing well, some are doing badly. And it really depends on levels of trust among citizens in institutions and how those institutions function, not simply according to the regime type, but competence apart from anything else. So there's a question about how you vest that kind of trust in international organizations. But there's also, I, I always used to be a bit skeptical of the view that you know when America fails, democracy fails. I think there are lots of different ways of doing democracy and uh, you know, it doesn't all hang on the fate of the United States. But I have to say in the last few weeks, I have had that feeling that when the flagship model, which it remains, is really failing, it's bad for democracy. I mean, I, even if you try and break it down in other ways, trust international organizations, there is still that feeling that we are looking at something which is a kind of showcase for some fundamental political struggle, and it's not going well for the United States. 
Well, I'm slightly embarrassed to even be talking about this because you're the world expert on this. You've written the books on this. Um, but I think you're right. I think that um, America matters more. Did you call it a showcase? I think that's a, a, a flagship. But it's a flagship in the wrong way at the moment. And it's a flagship for dysfunction. Yeah. And I, th I think it matters because of the United States superpower role. I mean, Germany and the UK can't claim to be a superpower in the same way. And it's been an agenda setting power. I mean, I know that in in every diplomatic, never mind military engagement that the world's seen for the last 50 or 70 years, American engagement or disengagement is the starting point for the discussion. So I think American democracy does matter more. I think you're right about that. And the frailties that have been exposed, not just by the crisis of the last two months, but more deeply, have very big implications. There's also the soft power side of this, because there's no question that there is a, a soft power equation. And the COVID response is part of a wider argument about how to run efficient and effective societies. I do want to not lose, though, something you said in the beginning of the question, because you, you started with social trust. And I've been very struck. You're closer, obviously, to the British scene than I am at the moment. But I've been very struck that the, the so-called populist attack on elite establishment institutions that was seen as a never-ending victory for, for assaults on, quote-unquote, establishment institutions, the civil service, the National Health Service, the BBC, that, from a distance, seems to have been reversed in some ways in the course of this crisis, that the ballast that comes from institutions which connect people has been really striking to me uh, for looking at the British response, uh, which has had huge faults and failings. But it's a big contrast to the US. I don't see the same binding institutions here. I mean, I was a junior high school student in the United States for a year in the 1970s. And I, mean, I was obviously more impressionable then than I am now. But the sense of one nation was much stronger now to me then than it is now. Whereas I think in the UK, the the reversal of fortune, if you like, that seems to be taking place for institutions that were easy to kick, but now are proving their worth, I think is quite a striking part of the social trust part of the equation that you were describing at the beginning of your question. I think it's true. I also think it's, it's a boring thing to say, but it's too early to tell. I mean, at, at this point in yeah, the crisis. And it is also true, I think, that in Europe, I mean, we've been talking to people in Italy and elsewhere, if some of that profound suspicion of European level institutions that's been there ebbing and flowing for the last decade since the last financial crisis has been turbocharged by this. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't want to sound like a sort of someone who doesn't get that there's emotion and that there is politics. But the European continent makes the case that you can't have any return or any progress to anything like normality, unless it's done across the continent, not just within individual countries on the continent. We're not going to go back to a world where the French-German border is sealed. We're not going to go back to a world where Europeans are not working in each other's countries, whatever happens to the future of the Schengen internal uh, movement regime. And so it seems to me that the, the tectonic forces are towards much stronger, more effective regional stroke global action in acute areas of crisis. And the three I mentioned, health, uh, economy and climate, are crisis areas. And 
it's striking to me that if you think back 50 or 60 years, you'd have put nuclear proliferation on that level. And actually, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is one of the toughest treaties, including independent inspections and independent action by the IAEA, etc. And so I think these crises of health, of climate, of economy, they're crises that I think our parents' generation might have recognized as equivalent to the nuclear, the sense of nuclear crisis of the 50s and 60s, and that there's this ineluctable sense that you, you have to meet that crisis of governance at a global level, not just at a national level. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The one institution in the UK in the recent polling where people's trust in it has gone down is the the newspaper industry, effectively. Journalists are considerably less trusted than they were a few weeks ago. Almost everyone else is a bit more trusted, including politicians. In in the US case, it's true that um, you know, doctors are being listened to in the health crisis. People do take the facts seriously. And yet this is still happening against that backdrop of mistrust and misinformation. And you mentioned you know, that fundamental question, do people trust Google more than they trust their government? Do you see that area of trust, trust in reliable information as something that imperils the response to this? Or it's, again, grounds for hope we may be coming through the worst of it and getting some of our bearings back? Well, I'm not an optimist in this area yet. I said that the third contest was about privacy and, and data, as you, as you suggested. Let me just tell you, when I speak to our team, our International Rescue Committee team in Pakistan, and I talk about prevention, what do they say within the first three minutes? Yeah, but what about fake news? When I spoke to our Somalia team, they say, yeah, but what about fake news? I don't have a good answer to this at the moment. I hadn't seen your figures on UK journalism. Although, are you saying trust in the BBC has gone down as well? No, newspapers. Ah, I see. So look, I think that this information warfare is really uh, such a fundamental part of how you manage the the problems and opportunities of the modern world. And I plead guilty. I don't have a good answer to that. And I can see the corrosion that comes when, what was that Peter Pomerantz book? Anything can be true, but nothing is provable or something. I mean, about the Russian model. And he's absolutely right. I mean, that is the dystopia that we have to worry about. I mean, part of the dystopia is a sort of nationalist xenophobic one. Part of the dystopia is a anti-democratic one. Part of the dystopia is an egalitarian one, but but another part of the dystopia is nothing, no such thing as truth. And uh, no such thing as fact is a better way of putting it. And I don't have a good answer to that. I think, did you did you answer that in your book? I don't know. I didn't. I also don't have a good answer. But um, it does, though, relate to the, the point you made. So this is also going to be about trust under conditions where however we manage this over the medium term, trying to manage the pandemic, it's going to involve more surveillance of one form or another and it's going to raise issues about privacy and one thing i've been feeling recently is that for now at least i'm sure it's true in the us it's certainly true in the uk people have gone back to thinking about questions of privacy and freedom in very 
old-fashioned terms. I mean, it's almost medieval. You know, a quarantine is a medieval device. It's not a track and trace device. People are thinking about when will I be allowed to leave my home? When can I move freely? When can I go and visit my family in their home? And so these questions are now very, very sort of familiar and sharp. As the lockdown lifts, as people are allowed more physical freedom to move about, more freedom to interact, we go back to those questions that we were debating before this happened about surveillance, privacy and consent. And I have a fear that it's almost going to be harder because people have gone back to the habit of thinking the fundamental privacy questions, the fundamental freedom questions are, can someone really stop me from going to the garden centre? But those aren't the fundamental questions for our time. The fundamental questions are the ones that are coming up. And I don't see any evidence that we're better equipped to deal with those. I actually had the opposite thought, which is that um, the freedom to go to the garden centre is balanced by your responsibility not to infect someone else who's at the garden centre. And couldn't you see that coming out of this, the, the notion of social cohesion, social solidarity, social respons- mutual responsibility means that people who actually do abuse the trust of their neighbours, actually, they become the pariahs. I think that the notion that you can walk out and cough on whoever is sitting next to you on the on the train, that's, that seems to me something that I think I can see the, the bar on antisocial behaviour being raised rather than lowered. Now, I may have completely misjudged the public mood, but from the polling I've seen that shows people supporting continued lockdown, fearing an early move to open things up, I would have thought we're looking at a world where if you're not wearing a mask in the next few years, you're going to, people are going to be looking at you, wondering, have you already had it? Have you got the, do you know that you can't spread it? And isn't there at least a, an argument that the sense of crisis that's come out of the, the COVID experience is going to require more social responsibility and lead to an expectation of a higher degree of social responsibility. I don't want to seem Panglossian about it, but isn't that at least plausible? So weirdly, I think we might almost be saying the same thing in that I agree that when thought about in terms of people's physical interactions with each other, something as physical as wearing a mask, there is almost certainly a clearer sense of social cohesion that we're not all isolated individuals free to do whatever we want. But that's going to go along with this virtual or digital form of surveillance or tracking or whatever it is. And I'm not clear in my own mind that people are in a position to think of these things as clearly related. So I I would have a fear that that desire for social cohesion could go along with actually acquiescing in quite a lot, whether in democratic or non-democratic regimes, quite a lot of enhanced governmental power to surveil us, to control us in different ways. But it's not the physical control. It's not the thing that we've been chafing against for the last few weeks or months. You know, We are roaming, but we're also under forms of surveillance. And that question, the question that existed before this crisis, which is how do we regulate that space? That's the thing I think potentially could be harder. To your point, that we have all put up with Mr. Google knowing much more about us than we'd ever have uh, guessed 25 years ago. So that that would support your point. On the other hand, I think there will be huge scrutiny of who's running the databases, how are they organized, what's the transparency associated with the tracking of people. I think you've had some of that in Israel, I think, which has gone furthest among the most democratic societies. I don't know enough about the South Korea 
example. But here's where liberal democracy is going to have to show its strength, that it can be transparent about these things. Because I, I would have thought that unless you have that transparency, you're, you're not going to be able to, to, to run the system. So then on the, in a way, the biggest one of all, which is your fourth contest, which is about inequality, there's maybe a feeling on the the left, the social democratic left, that 2008 and the financial crisis was believed at the time that it ought to create the conditions for people to focus much more on both the problem of inequality and political solutions to it. And that didn't happen. That crisis, for whatever reason, didn't seem to generate including among voting publics, an appetite for that kind of response. Do you think this one is different? Is this a crisis that, unlike that one, has within it the potential to really focus minds on inequality as the fundamental issue of our time? I think it has the real potential to focus on new inequalities. And that is, I think, different from 2008-9. 2008 to, to me, was a market failure that got turned into a government failure. You, you can see that that's what the nativist stroke populist right might try to do again. Equally, I think that um, the way in which low paid workers are valued is on the table now in a way that it's not been for a very long time. I think that the way in which the care sector is recognised, the way in which the the definition of essential services is changing. So I think that there are new inequalities in a service economy that have been brought graphically onto the agenda. The, the sort of connections in the human family, I think, have been brought to the service more clearly. I also hope that the holes in the global safety net are more clearly recognised. I mean, that's the counterpart to this. And it can't just be in China that extreme poverty is reduced at a fast rate. It's got to be in the South Sudans of this world. It's got to be in the Yemens of this world as well. So I think there is a, for people on my side of politics, that there is a chance that that will happen. However, the, the flip side is that the economics are going to be far more difficult because the the scale of the economic response and the burdens that that's going to put on the public purse, I don't think will mean that issues of economic security go away. I think they're going to be very present as well. So I think that while you can see the ends of a more equal distribution of wealth and income being higher up the agenda, the question of how that's met, I think, is, um, is open. Now, I see that as exciting because I think that there has been a throwing out of dead ideology on quite a lot of the response, but we must make sure that it, it leads to some creativity in policymaking rather than walking into dead ends. It's maybe unfair to pin this on Joe Biden, who we assume will be the Democratic candidate for the presidency. But one worry I always have in these kind of contests is that you have to have a sense of what the future looks like for a particular political program, the world that that program wants to bring into being on the other side of this crisis. And I still have a pretty clear idea of what a Trumpian world coming out of this would look like. It's not attractive to me, but I, I know what it means. I know what Trump wants. It's early days. Um, am I missing something by not knowing what a Biden world coming out of this would look like? Well, I think you're raising the right question, because I don't think it's a lack of research on your part that has left cloudy what a Biden presidency would mean. Of course, there's a big element of the US system, which is, does he get a 
Congress that was willing to work with him. And one of the most interesting things in the last four weeks is that the question of who controls the Senate has become a live, competitive part of politics in American political commentary in a way that it wasn't before. The assumption was that whatever happened to the presidency, the Senate would remain in uh, Republican hands. That's now far more under question. But uh, let's put that uh, to one side. I think the issue for candidate Biden, Vice President Biden, is what is he a bridge to? I mean, he's a extremely knowledgeable, experienced, 76, 77-year-old politician. And so he's got to answer the question of what does he lead to? And I think that there are some pretty powerful answers that he can give that. I mean, I think it was in the 96 election that President Clinton used the phrase bridge to the future. I think you're absolutely right that it's incumbent on Joe Biden to answer that question clearly. And I think he can do so pivoting from the crisis but also drawing the right lessons from the crisis. And I always think that political arguments are won much more in the definition of the problem than in the argument about the details of the policy answer. Two thirds of the politics is about how you define the problem. And if he can define the problem around the holes in the American safety net and the insecurity of the working and middle class, I think that he will be able to command really quite a strong you use the word vision. He'll be able to define quite a strong vision. He'll be able to say, "What's this? What am I a bridge to?" And in a way, he could almost turn his age into an advantage rather than a disadvantage in that, because he could do it with an aspect of humility and openness uh, that I think might be befitting the moment. And do you think that that involves this? Is a phrase that you may not like moving further to the left, because again, I know what a Bernie Sanders future looks like, whether you like it or not. Um, there's a danger that Biden is neither one thing nor the other, fleshing that vision out under these conditions and, and leaving aside the question of how to get the vote out of the people who wanted Bernie to be president. Do you think a Biden presidency needs to be more left than an Obama presidency? Well, there's no question that on the economy, if by being more to the left, you mean more action on the insecurity that's caused by the healthcare system that takes up 17% of national income, but doesn't cover a whole load of people. If you mean filling the, raising the minimum wage, because that has not been lifted for, I think, 15 years. If you mean a proper unemployment insurance system, if you mean taking care of carers, I mean, there's no doubt that the center of gravity in American economic policy is further to the right than in Europe. And it it would be, to my mind, enormously beneficial to the country if it was moved further to the left. And I don't think that there's any reason to be scared of that. Equally, I think if you mean by moving to the left, would it be wise to propose that 160 million people who have private health care have that taken away from them in the first year of, an, of a Biden presidency and a new uh, system established here? I, I don't think that would be wise nor feasible. So. I hope that's a clear answer. I don't think we should be. I don't think. I don't think anyone should be afraid that their economic policy is called "quote unquote" left if it actually makes sense. If it doesn't make sense, that's a bigger problem. And finally, the British Labour Party. What's its role in this uh, crisis? Do you think should it be thinking about five years ahead, or should it be thinking about six months ahead? I mean, obviously I it's, both. It's a well, political it's party, but yeah, uh, it's but look for, for for those of us who have grieved at the inability of the Labour Party to present itself as an alternative government over the last five years, it's suddenly, um, it's not sunlit uplands, but at least the sun's coming out, or at least we can come out. And 
I think we have a leader, we, I say, as a member of the Labour Party, who is thoughtful, intelligent, strategic, has good judgment, has good values, and has an open mind. And that is a really big step forward, I think, or a, a big opening. And the responsibility on Labour, I think, is huge now, because this crisis opens up space that, for all sorts of reasons, um, the Conservative Party is going to find it very hard to to, to occupy. And for the good of the country, we desperately need an effective alternative government. And so that is both a six-day, six-month, and five-year project. But it's an incredibly important project. Because if, if even half of what I've said about the lessons of the crisis is right, then it's got to be from a centre-left perspective that some of the holes are filled in. If you'd like to find out more about the work of the IRC and how you can support them, the details will be on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Thank you to everyone who's been telling us that they've been enjoying our new podcast, Talking Politics, History of Ideas. The first two were available on this podcast, but if you want to get the rest, and there's one a day this week and seven more after that, you do need to subscribe to Talking Politics, History of Ideas. It's ad-free. You can get all of them in one place. But do please subscribe. You won't get them on this podcast. We're back in our regular slot next week with Helen Thompson, and we're going to be talking to Amy Maxman from Nature, the world's leading science magazine, about the politicisation of science and the politics of the WHO. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. It says here that they're off, but it does keep on going bring. Get not- I-, I want to stop all notifications, so here we are. Get notifications from these. Sorry, David, are you getting bored with this? That's all right. That's- <laughs> I just listened. You, you sound bored. Um, no, I um, I just listened to Louis Theroux and John Ronson, which is currently the number one podcast in the UK, talk to each other, and uh, they were constantly being interrupted by beeps. And John Ronson would be in the middle of a story, and then it would go beep, and you say, "My mum's calling," and they left yeah. all that in. So we can do that. Well, let, if it becomes annoying, then we might do. We, we might just try and sort might turn it, it into a into a thing. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.